The preaching of God's Word is found in Psalm 71 as we continue our series on this psalm. And it's particularly verses 2, 3, and 4. Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verses 2 through 4. David writes, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. There is no burden like unto the conviction of our sin. There are burdens that you and I will experience and have experienced. There are burdens that are heavy and weighty. But when it is that we come face to face with the reality, not of sin, but of my sin, and of the profanity and the wickedness and the corruption and the depravity and the shame of all that is bound up in that, and when we are face to face with it, we will realize and acknowledge quite easily that there is no burden like that. And this is one reason why the world does its best to deny that sin is what the Bible says. Because so soon as the world would admit that sin is in its nature vile and depraved, it would realize that it is in a world that is vile and depraved. It would realize that it is guilty of that which is vile and depraved. There are some actions that seem to break through the understanding even of depraved men, not graciously, but simply so bold are the actions of some sins that the world is aghast at the wickedness of what some have done. Brethren, there's a difference between being amazed at and grieved by the sins of others and being amazed at and grieved by our own sins. This is one reason that some who cannot deny the reality of their own sin and the burden thereof do their best to try and work it off. They see it so wicked and inexcusable that according to some sense of justice, they try and put their hand and all of their soul's energies into the working off of this great debt that they have incurred. And it is one reason why souls who realize that they cannot pay off that debt enter into a spiritual state of paralysis, having lost all hope. If you want to see what conviction of sin without grace looks like, you need look no further than Judas Iscariot. If the world were left to the conviction of sin without grace, all would be as Judas. How then may we rightly deal with conviction? We know, of course, we're not to excuse it or to deny it or to ignore it, though many try to do that. We know that we can't work it off because it's of such a debt that were we given millions of lifetimes, we could never work off a sin against an infinitely glorious God. We likewise know that it is not any benefit to us to sit paralyzed in our conviction. Well, notice David found by God's grace the true hope when faced with conviction. So we've considered thus far what the sin was, noting the title of the psalm. You remember last time we saw the foundation of David's hope. Have mercy upon me. David found that the true foundation of hope was God's mercy. It was not his merit. It was not his future merit. It was not David or anything in David. It was rather God's revealed mercy that he is a gracious and generous and kind 
and merciful God. If you remember having just read Jeremiah chapter 3, this is the very foundation that he's presenting to his people and their sin again and again in the face of their continued wickedness. He's imploring them, look at my mercy, though among men you would be cast off if you were such a wife as you are to me. Yet I stand here and I implore you, hear my call and return to me. God is again and again imploring his people to consider his mercy. Well, notice from this foundation, David then moves And he moves to this request, verse 2, of comprehensive cleansing. And it's not that we can fully understand this without understanding how heinous David's sin was. It would be audacious for David carelessly to come and say, yeah, sure, wash me. But notice the language, wash me thoroughly. We would say thoroughly, my ins, my outs, all that I am needs full and comprehensive cleansing. He says further, from mine iniquity. The word iniquity is certainly a synonym for the word sin, but it is expressive of that inward corruption desires and thoughts and affections and lusts that are impure. I need cleansing, not in a ceremonial way. I need actual cleansing spiritually. Notice he goes further and cleanse me from my sin, my waywardness. I've gone astray from your commandments and I need your forgiveness and cleansing. Verse 3 He then confesses, so he's requested, and then he says, For, why is it, God, that you should wash me? Well, first and foremost, because you're merciful. But I'm coming acknowledging my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions, my rebellions, my turning away from your clear and holy law. My sin is ever before me. Notice that expression, I acknowledge. I come and I say, It's mine, and it's wicked. What I've done is inexcusable. Verse 4, he acknowledges what he deserves. He says that he sinned against God, against thee, the only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and clear when thou judgest. If you were to consume me, you would be just. He's vindicating God. And what we see here is David is engaged in the gracious exercise of confessing his sin. And it's important for us to see here, but also elsewhere, that the ground of his confession is first and foremost the mercy of God. It is resting upon God's revealed grace, his kindness, his generosity, his willingness to forgive. And it's from this clear foundation that he then sees, I can't work it off. I'm not offering to buy it out and to pay off my debt. I can't do that. But I'm nonetheless encouraged and drawing near. And I come saying, I see what I've done. I acknowledge what I've done. I own what I've done. I've done it. I'm guilty by it. I'm condemned by it. It's against you that I've sinned. You would be just to cast me off. But I ask you to wash me, to cleanse me. And he'll certainly go on to express this even in other ways. What we see here is that David, by God's grace, is convicted. He's face to face with his burden. He doesn't act like those of our own day that say, well, everyone sins, big deal. You know, just sort of say something and move on. He's gripped by it. He realizes what he's done is inexcusable. The life of grace, you understand, is not a life of casual indifference to sin. The life of grace looks upon sin as absolutely abhorrent. Now think of that expression, abhorrent. If you abhor something, it's disgusting to you. It's inexcusable to you. You can't bear to think upon it. David is face to face with that. But instead of being overwhelmed by it onto spiritual paralysis, 
He's eyed the foundation of hope, which is God's mercy. And assured of his mercy, he now comes without any bargaining, without any bartering. And he comes and says, here's my petition. Here's my request. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Wash me from all that I've done. We've heard the moving testimonies of some parents whose children have been abused and murdered and their words understandable to us. I could never forgive the one who did this to my child. That resonates in us. It makes us realize something of what that parent is going through, the torment, the horror of what someone has done to their child. We say nothing to belittle that truth in the least. But we do say this, however wicked and heinous such an action does, when we consider our sins against God, we enter a realm more abhorrent. How audacious for us to come and say, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me. Were it not that God was merciful and willing to forgive our sins. This is the point. David, to David, has been revealed this truth of which he testifies elsewhere in the scriptures and which is testified beyond what David records and which is clarified in the New Testament that God is a God who forgives iniquity, sin, and transgression. And someone says, well, how do I get in on that? How do I partake of that? What is it I need to do to get that? What must I do in order to obtain forgiveness? God's word comes and says this, only acknowledge your sin. Confess it. See it as I see it. Acknowledge it for what it is and request forgiveness. Don't come with something in your hand to say, here's the reason Come and acknowledge your sin, rest upon my mercy, and ask me for such cleansing. It's precisely what David says earlier in the Psalms, Psalm 32. And there at verse 5, he's under duress. He's in great distress over his conviction of sin. And he testifies in verse 5. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. There's the burden. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. There's the burden. There's a soul that knows sin. There's a gracious soul that knows sin. There's a believing soul that knows sin. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said... I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. You see it in what we read in 1 John and chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is it that we are to deal with the burden of our sins? Well, David here helps us. And of course, it's God helping us by his word. First, by seeing the foundation as his mercy, which we considered last week. But then by seeing it is that we are to confess our sins in the hope of forgiveness by grace. Well, notice clearly throughout this psalm and throughout these verses Confession is made to God. And so it's David coming to God. I acknowledge my transgressions against thee. The only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It's not that we shouldn't confess our sins when we've sinned against someone. Christ tells us that. But our asking for forgiveness from a person is not what brings forgiveness with God. It is the outworking of a heart seeking to honor the Lord. It is the outworking of a heart that loves the one against whom we've sinned. It's the seeking to establish again peace and harmony within that relationship. But the confession of our sin is preeminently an exercise of our soul 
with God. We confess our sins to God. And you'll also see that there is nowhere set up some mediator between God and man beside the Lord Jesus Christ who himself is God. We don't go to another saint. We don't implore the Virgin Mary. We rather approach God himself because it's God against whom we've sinned and it's God who himself is merciful and it's God who forgives our sins. Well, we wish to focus on this in two ways. Firstly, looking at the act of confessing and secondly, looking at the desire of of confessing. What is the act of confessing our sin? And what is the desire that is bound up in confessing our sin? So notice the act of confessing. You'll see essential components of confessing our sin. Sometimes you'll come across in the Bible confession of sin, and one component is more pronounced than another for circumstantial reasons. But wherever there is real confession, these four things will be found. The first is that where there's the act of confessing, there is the confessing of what sin is. It's the acknowledging of what sin is. Notice David isn't just loading up synonyms. Verse 2, he uses the word iniquity. Verse 2, he uses the word sin. Verse 3, he uses the word transgressions. And verse 4, he uses the word Evil. Now, it's true, these are synonyms, but a synonym is not just another word to say the same thing. It often possesses some other insight, some other aspect, and these words likewise have the same. Iniquity, as we've noted, refers more to that inward influence of our desires. And so you think of the word lust. Lust is simply a word that means desire. And so one can lust for food, one can lust for fame, one can lust for wealth. But this idea of desire is something that is inside us. It's spiritual. It's something intangible. It will lead to tangible actions and vocalized words. But iniquity is acknowledging that there are desires within us. There is corruption within us, which then leads to these activities. And so David's acknowledging that. He's not saying it's outside of me. Remember what Christ says. It's not what goes into the man that defiles the man. It's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. Because from the heart proceeds all adulteries and murders and thefts and so on. And David is acknowledging that. He'll go further as we'll see as the Lord gives us opportunity in the future But notice he uses the word sin, which is to wander astray from God's commandments. Similar to the word translated as sin in the New Testament, which is a missing of the mark. And so it is David's acknowledging, I failed, I've gone astray, I've turned aside. And the word transgressions is that which means rebellions. And likewise, evil is this uh, corruption of what is the right order. What's the point? David is not mincing words. He's not hesitant to acknowledge the horror of his sin. He's not saying, why are you being all pushy and making me say it's this and that bad thing and this bad thing and this bad thing? He's leading the charge. He's capturing the fact that what he's done, in some way we can say it this way, is indescribably wicked. Now, someone could easily point out and say, well, what David did was committed adultery. He had this woman's husband murdered, indescribably wicked. But if we go back and think of that for a moment, why is such a thing wicked? It's because God said it's wicked. It's because it violates the standards which God has established in his word. And so sin is the transgression of the law of God. It's any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God, as our catechism summarizes. It is, as John writes in 1 John, as we saw last time, lawlessness. God has set forth his law, which is beaming brightly of what is good and what is uh, right. And sin 
turns from that and transgresses, rebels against that. And when one is confessing his sin, he is not hesitant to own the defilement of his sin. Now, this is something that challenges us because when we are guilty of sin and someone perhaps brings that up, we feel this sort of rooting of our heels into the ground saying, you know, what I did was bad, but I mean, lay off a little bit. It's not that bad. And what that's a testimony to is our little view of God. That's a little view of sin. But everywhere there's a little view of sin, there's a little view of God. Because the reason sin is so enormous in its wickedness is because it's so enormous in its vileness before God. God who is good and holy and pure. And the sinner that is convicted of this, the believer that is brought to conviction of his sin, is not hesitant to acknowledge it. This is fundamentally what confession is. It's acknowledging sin to be what God says sin is. It's confessing, it's saying the same thing. That's the word confess. It's saying the same thing as God says about it. And so where there is confession, there is the confessing of what sin is. But secondly, where there is confession, there is the confession of who committed it. You see what David says? He says, my sin. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And he goes on throughout the psalm owning this. Point is this. David is not hesitant to say, it's mine. There are instances in our lives where we're hesitant to own something as our own. Children are running around in a public place and someone says, who are those kids? And we're like, well, they're actually mine. You know, there's this hesitation because there's some sense of, of embarrassment, perhaps, or shame or whatever else. Or perhaps, you know, our cars have been less than, you know, of the high quality of others. And we're hesitant to uh, point out this is my car, you know, with the rust and the dent and so on. It's, it's mine. And there's understanding why it is we would conf- hesitate to confess that sin is ours. But where there is conviction unto confession, there's no longer a hesitation because it's unavoidable. God says, who did this? And we know he sees me. He knows he's knowing this and I know it. And moreover, if we have undergone real conviction, we've been brought to see that it's mine. I have sinned in thy sight Have I done this evil? It's something to note. David doesn't say that he's confessing sin. Do you see that? He's not confessing some abstract notion of rebellion or wickedness or transgression or iniquity. He's confessing my sin. I've done it. I'm guilty. I'm the one. And so where there is gracious conviction, not only will there be confession of what sin is in its nature and actions and so on, there will be the confession of the personal commission of it, that I'm the one who's done it. Now you put those two together and what confession isn't is, you know, I made a mistake. You know, I sort of acted a little bit off and so on. David doesn't say any of those. He doesn't put those filler words in. He's unreservedly owning this is my sin, my iniquity, my rebellion, my evil. But thirdly, notice he confesses the one against whom sin is committed. He says this almost astonishingly when he says in verse 4, against thee, the only, have I sinned. We might rise up and say, time out, wait. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? He's not denying that there were sins committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and even against the kingdom of God. But what he's brought to see, as all who are brought convicted do see, is that these sins against others are still, as it were, a spectrum of violation against God. 
So children, you can think of a prism, right? A beam of light hits the prism and you see the various colors of that beam broken up by the prism. And so you can think of it actually in the reverse way. So here are the various colors that are then being brought, as it were, through the prism into the one beam of light. And so this sin against Uriah is ultimately a sin against God. This sin with Bathsheba is ultimately a sin against God. This sin against the kingdom is ultimately a sin against God. And we can multiply this, right? My speech against my spouse is a sin against God. My carriage toward this other stranger is a sin against God. My stealing of this is a sin against God. Sometimes we hear the idea of victimless crimes. And we ought to step back and think for a moment, well, there's no such thing. You know, there's this notion, for instance, that um, the purchasing of drugs, illegal drugs on the street is a victimless crime. But the fact is, a majority of the illegal drugs that are being sold come from drug traffickers who are guilty of murder, who are guilty of human trafficking, so that buying illegal drugs on the street is actually serving that whole system of open and gross wickedness. Just because we don't see the victims in our transaction doesn't mean there aren't victims. Well, what's the point? It's an analogy. When we think for a moment, well, I've done something, but no one, it wasn't really done against anyone. You hear this sometimes, like a person gets caught stealing a thousand dollars from a big corporation, they'll say, well, they don't really miss it. It's not really a big deal. You know, they don't really, who cares? The big issue is not that they're actually guilty of a crime, which they are, but they're actually missing the point that this stealing of an insignificant amount of money from a multi-billion dollar company is ultimately a sin against God. It doesn't ultimately matter against whom it is in this world. It all comes back and is connected in the fact that it's against God. Now think for a moment. There's a sense in which we might feel a bit more comfortable if we sin against one person versus another person. So perhaps we'd feel a bit more comfortable if we lose our cool in some uh, you know, anonymous setting and we're shouting and carrying on. Well, no one knows who I am and what's the big deal. You know, maybe I said something that was sinful. Maybe I cut someone down. Maybe I was ungenerous in my speech. But in the end, it's just against these strangers. Whereas if we were in this setting and said the same things and carried on the same way, we'd be ashamed because of the people who are before us. But what this helps us see is that whether the faces are known and the relationships are intimate or the faces are unknown and the relationships don't exist, if it's sin, it's committed against God. And so the heart which is convicted is brought to see that I've sinned. David could have been thinking, well, I'm the king, you know, like I'm the ultimate person. Uriah is just one of my soldiers. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that ultimately it's not against Bathsheba or Uriah or his army or his kingdom. It's against God. What's the big deal about our sins? Well, there are degrees of heinousness. Relationships will make one more or less heinous. The situation and circumstances will make one sin more or less heinous. But we ought to remember this. Every sin is against God. And so every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And the one confessing his sin knows that and owns it. I've sinned, however else, I've sinned against you. Now notice, fourthly, that this act of confessing confesses what the sin deserves. It acknowledges it. You may be justified when thou speakest, verse 4, clear when thou judgest. What David is saying is this. Knowing that I've sinned against you, I acknowledge that were you to speak against me, were you to condemn and judge me, you would get nothing from me but the absolute acknowledgement that you are just. 
There are tremendous depths of experience in this portion. As we'll see in a moment, some of it. But this is such an ingredient of true confession that escapes many people. You can ask people, well, have you sinned? Yeah, I've sinned. You know, I mean, who's perfect, right? That's how it sort of goes. Well, do you deserve damnation? Well, you know, what? Do I deserve damnation? You know, I mean, yeah, I spoke a little off. Or maybe I, you know, when I was a child, I stole a Snickers bar or... You know, what I was doing was bad and wrong, but damnation? See, when a soul is convicted, they have no hesitation to say, what I deserve is damnation. Were you to speak against me, you would be just. You would be clear. There'd be no injustice (coughs) whatsoever. Brethren, these are ingredients, components of the act of confessing, but remember that this confession comes from a perception of God's mercy. And one might say, well, how? Why? Well, think for a moment before moving on. We're liberated to acknowledge the reality of our sin. We're liberated to acknowledge that we are the ones who have sinned. We're liberated to acknowledge that we've sinned against the gloriously, infinitely good and holy God. We're liberated to confess that we deserve damnation and judgment, not only because it's true, but because we perceive the mercy of God. We perceive that as we're confessing and acknowledging, we're confessing not only to the one against whom we've sinned, but we're confessing to the one who has said, I will be merciful. We are confident, and therefore we aren't trying to, as it were, order our thoughts and our language with some rhetorical skill to sort of get the message out while defending ourselves. You see this, don't you, with sort of the scandals that erupt in society? And so... You know, you look at the black and white of transcripts of things that are said on social media or whatever, and then you hear the asking for forgiveness, which, by the way, isn't actually what happens. Typically, it's expressed this way. I'm sorry that some things that I've said have been understood to be demeaning to this person. Now, whatever else that is, it's not confession, and it's a bunch of rhetoric trying to protect one's face, saving face, doing enough to be able to say, well, I said that I was sorry, but falling short of actually owning the actual sin. So these public scandals erupt, and then they'll say things like, you know, yep, I'm sorry that some people have understood what I've done to be demeaning or wrong or whatever else, and I'm going to commit to being a better person. I'm going to commit to being better. It's not my standard, all this. And, and then somehow society is supposed to say, well, that's pretty full and clear. But if you get behind why they're doing it that way, they're doing it that way in order to fall short of owning the wickedness of what they've done. They fall short of saying, this is inexcusable, this is sin, and I am, as it were, beholden to this person or this society or this nation to forgive me. I have no other hope but that. And so all these public, whatever they want to be called, they're not asking for forgiveness. These apologies are short because they're convinced Perhaps they're convinced that what they've done really isn't that big. They're convinced perhaps that what they've done is so big that were they to throw it all out there in all of its wicked, horrible color, there would be no hope. The believer perceives that their sins are big, but they also perceive that God's mercy is bigger. Where sin abounded, God's grace hath more abounded. And so notice then, secondly, the desire expressed by confession. Why is it that David confesses? Why is it that we're to confess? We start with where we just left off. The desire is first and foremost to vindicate God. This is something that's often overlooked. 
But you'll notice how David expresses it when he says, Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What David is expressing is this. God, you're righteous. What I've done is wrong. Your ways are good. My ways are wrong. You're good and holy. I'm evil and wicked. There's a vindicating of God. It's instructive even. You remember the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. Now, there are questions that we have about Achan and precisely what's taken place. But it's instructive that Joshua, having been brought to identify Achan as the one who had touched the forbidden things that were under a curse, that he's brought to see it's Achan. And Joshua says in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 19, he says, Achan, my son, listen to this language, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him. In other words, whatever else is true of Achan, is also seen in David in Psalm 51. There is a desire to glorify God. You're right. You're good. You're holy. You're the one who is perfect. And I'm not. I deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. That's what I deserve. I vindicate your name. And you see, when we confess sin, not mistakes, when we confess sin, not misunderstandings, when we confess sin, not the effect of sin that it hurt you, and I'm sorry for that, but when we confess sin, what we're doing is without any you know, lack of clarity, we're saying, God, you're just. Your way is good. Your law is holy and perfect. And I am one who has done what is wrong. So confession vindicates God. It reminds us that the gracious exercise of confession is always God-centered. By the way, this is true of the gracious exercise of anything. The gracious exercise of faith is God-centered. The gracious exercise of our graces and worship is God-centered. The gracious exercise of our labor and evangelism is God-centered. It's consumed with God. And confession is the same. God, you are glorious and holy and righteous and just. Your law is good and holy and uh, uh, worthy of honor. And what I've done testifies against me. Confession vindicates God in his law and in his judgment. It's David, of course, who subsequent to this season of his life will be chased away from his kingdom. You'll remember that. When the man is throwing stones at him and his mighty men says, give us the word and we'll put this man to death. Who is this one who throws stones at you? And David says, let it be. He is humbling himself under God. It is of the Lord. If God will, he'll bring me back. You see, there's the mark of one who has discerned his sin. By the way, he's already confessed his sin. But you see, it's not just a one-time act. Well, I'll vindicate you. Now I'm going to be ready for my own proud undertaking. It actually cultivates a lowliness in the life of the believer where there is true confession. Because when there's true confession, there is the enlarging of a view of God and the humbling of a view of ourself. We become small. God becomes big. It's not a changing of what is. It's a perceiving of the truth. Many of you will know the famous story of Uh, James Durham and Andrew Gray. They were both young ministers in the Church of Scotland. They both served as pastors in the same parish, as it were, in Glasgow. And at that time, you can still go to this church in Glasgow, uh, the church building was actually divided into multiple church places. And so you would be going to the same building, and yet there'd be a partition and a different congregation would be meeting elsewhere. And James Durham and Andrew Gray, these ministers, were walking to the church. And there was a great number going into that building, the part where Andrew Gray would be preaching, and a smaller number going to where Mr. Durham would be preaching. 
And Mr. Durham commends the Lord's blessing of Mr. Gray's ministry. And Mr. Gray seeks to console Mr. Durham and says, oh, if they knew better, they'd be going to you. And James Durham says something along the lines that is indicative of the fundamental part of this point. He says, not so, for I am pleased if God is honored. All my desire is for God to be honored. What am I? I'm nothing. If not a single soul comes to hear me preach, Durham is saying to Gray, what does it matter so long as God is gaining glory to himself? What does it matter if no one ever listens to me? If God is gathering a people to worship his name, I don't care about myself. My only consuming desire is that God would be glorified. And you see, what happens when there's true confession of sin is there is the cultivating of that posture. There's not this rising up, who are you to talk to me about my sin? Don't make a big deal. Who's this person to bring this to me? You know, get off this topic. Talk about yourself. Deal with yourself. No, where there's grace, you see, applied to one convicted of his sin, it humbles that man. It humbles that woman. And what it does is it cultivates a gracious view of the truth. What am I? I am nothing compared to the glorious God. And it doesn't just impact us when we feel the conviction of our sin. That grace carries on with us all the days of our life. When things are going well and good. When things are happy and we're glad. You see what God forms in us by the gracious work of conviction and confession of sin is not just this notion of penitence. It's not pain. He's not after us to just make us feel it and rub our face in it. He's actually bringing us low to make us see the beauty of the glory of His name. And that is not meant to leave us. That is not meant to somehow evade and escape us when we get past the sense of conviction. You see, it's a gracious thing that God convicts His people. It's a tremendously beautiful thing that He convicts His people. Because what He's doing in doing that is He's bringing them to the right perspective of the whole of the universe. That God alone is worthy of glory. Now, by the way, think of what's said in heaven. Thou art worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. And this is the unceasing word of the people of heaven. They are consumed with the all-surpassing excellency of the knowledge of God. And here's the wonder of the grace of conviction. God takes our rebellion and in grace, He turns it to our advantage. He graciously draws near to us and He implores us by His grace to consider His mercy, to consider the excellency of His grace, of His forgiveness, that we would see how glorious He is. <clears throat> By no means does this mean, well, I'm going to sin more, that I might benefit more. That is to profane and corrupt this truth. But where there is the gracious work of God convincing and bringing forth confession, its mark will be seen by the soul desiring the honor of God. I'm not worthy of honor. God is worthy of honor. That's the desire. I desire to give God the glory. I desire to give God the honor. And so people talk, you know, church discipline, why would you shame a person? Well, there's no doubt there is a gracious shaming. But the actual purpose is to gain God glory and help that person actually see 
that there is one alone who is worthy of our all praise, worship, and adoration. And the one who has been brought graciously to acknowledge it will be the first to say, God, you are worthy. But notice, secondly, this desire is because of the desire for forgiveness. And so David says, wash me thoroughly or thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There are things that happen among people, humans, that are so overwhelming that we would be hesitant to say, well, can you erase all of that and just live with them as if it were that's never happened? It'd be too big of an ask. But notice David comes and he says, here it is, wash it all away. Leave not a mark, not a scuff, not the slightest impression, but cleanse it all. Full pardon, purifying. I need this grace. It's beautiful what John says that he cleanses us from all sin. Now, how is it that this forgiveness comes? Well, notice the language, wash me, cleanse me, will be brought up again in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We'll spend more time on that verse in time to come, the Lord willing. But you'll remember that hyssop was uh, a plant that was used with the sacrifices. There'd be the blood of the sacrificial victim. And the hyssop would be dipped in the blood and then sprinkled and applied. And what David is expressing here is the only way of pardon is by the blood of the substitute. It only comes as you apply it to me. And so it is David's confessing his sin because otherwise, how can you be forgiven? You know, you can't be forgiven for something that you aren't bringing and acknowledging that it's the issue. And so David comes and he says, here it is, all of it. Here's the wickedness. Here's the various sort of perspectives on it. Here it is. And now that it's here before us, here's my ask. Forgive me. Cleanse me of it. Not of some vague generality, not of some effect of sorrow, but of the transgression, the iniquity, the sin, the evil. He seeks forgiveness from God. Full forgiveness. Notice, by the way, when it says, wash me thoroughly or throughly, this complete notion of forgiveness It's not just taking away, as it were, the spiritual side of things or the temporal side of things. Purgatory in Roman Catholicism has this notion that God freely forgives the spiritual reality of our sin. But purgatory remains because there is the temporal payoff of what's still owed. Again and again, these false teachings are disproved by God's word. Here's the wonder. The one who comes to God in accordance to his mercy through Jesus Christ has opened to him full forgiveness. Not by any price brought, not by any say this prayer 500 times, do this work, go up these stairs, visit that person, visit with these people, but by a simple confession and an ask, wash me. And the wonder is God is willing to do that. He seeks forgiveness and purifying. Both ideas are bound up in this expression. You see it in 1 John 3. He will forgive us and cleanse us from all our transgressions. It's a beautiful statement as well of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he give himself? For what purpose did Jesus give himself for us. Titus 2 verse 14. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, that's forgiveness, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's the giving of himself 
in his death for us that both forgives and purifies, that both redeems and sanctifies. It's all centered upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And confession is is expressing this. It's not in me. It's not in my work, my resolution, my promises. It's in Christ for his sake. See what a mess I've made of all of these things. But oh, for his sake, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, purify me. Brethren, what should we do upon discovering our sin? Well, as David sets before us, we approach God eyeing his mercy, not our merit. We approach God viewing his grace, not even our gratitude. We approach God based on what he's promised to do, based on what he's revealed of himself. That is the foundation. And that is what enables us to be full in our acknowledgement of our sin. We can find clever ways of speaking with others in such a way as to sort of flirt with acknowledging the truth, but falling just short of it. But when it is there's true confession based upon God's mercy, we come and we open up and say, here it all is. And we do so because we are confident, not only that what we've done is being truly described, but we are confident that God's grace is promised to forgive. We know what God thinks by his word, and yet we also know what God thinks by his word as it tells us of his willingness to forgive. So we approach God by his mercy, we acknowledge our sin, and we ask him freely to forgive. Brethren, this is of immense help to each of us. Each of us, frankly, a believer and unbeliever can be helped by this. An unbeliever in God's covenant, out of God's covenant, should come to terms with this. There is no drawing near to God without the knowledge of his mercy and the acknowledgement of our sins. But that doesn't change for the believer. The believer draws near because of God's mercy with the acknowledgement of our sins. And doing so brings us the assurance of what John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It may be that you and I are hesitant to do so. But look again at the Lord's mercy in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and see one who frankly already knows all the details and yet also see one who has clearly testified of his willingness and ability to forgive us all of our sins. And when it is we are convinced of the truth of what God has revealed of himself, then it is we will be full in our confession with the assurance that he will be full in his provision of that grace of forgiveness, reconciliation, and purifying. Would you stand with me for for prayer?